The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's sort of this question of like, is there going to be one front door or do we need one front door? I think the reality is this space is is wide. And what we're trying to figure out how to capture here is you've got multiple different sectors with different types of tech that are going to get compromised in different ways from OT to, you know, to IT to all sorts of other systems that we haven't even really conceived of yet. And we're trying to create legislation at a macro level here that's able to capture a lot of those different use cases. And I think it would be sort of a a futile exercise if we were to say there's going to be one fit for how you tell the quote unquote government about this, right? So what I think we should hope for and strive for here is just clarity on who you approach based on the use case you have and what your company is. I'm David Chris, And I'm Brian Cunningham, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 18th, 2023. Chris Fonzone is the general counsel of ODNI and has worked in senior legal roles at the Defense Department, the National Security Council, and the Department of Justice, and in the private sector as a partner at the Sidley and Austin law firm. Laura Galante is the intelligence community's cyber executive and director of ODNI's Cyber Threat Intelligence Integration Center, or CTIC. She worked previously in a position that involves supporting Ukrainian government agencies on cyber defense, in the Defense Intelligence Agency, and in the private sector at Mandiant. And she's also a lawyer and a farmer. Continuing our series of podcasts with U.S. government cyber leaders, we talk with Chris and Laura about their careers, the intra- and interagency issues in cyber policy and operations, the new national cyber strategy, and many other fun and interesting topics. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 18th, 2023. Chris Fonzone and Laura Galante of ODNI. You guys are very senior officials in the office of the DNI. Chris, you're the top lawyer, and Laura, you're the top cyber executive. You've both had really incredible careers in and out of government. So why don't we start with that? Laura, can you tell us first about what you've done before now and how you got to the position you're in? Yeah, well, thanks for having us. Um, I'm a longtime lawfare listener and consumer, so excited to be here and, and do this with you both, David. Longtime listener, well. first time caller. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I guess to to kind of weave together a, a what feels like kind of a smattering of experiences that led me to this spot. I'll actually go back to my first internship at the State Department for fun here. So I came out of school and uh, and had an internship at INR, State's Intelligence Bureau. And I was given this account, Atrocities and War Crimes, and I was a Balkans nerd in school. And, you know, we had just caught Mladic, I'm dating myself on this, or making it even more obscure. But 
I got a call a few months into what was a really interesting experience at State, and it was over at DIA. And they said, hey, we've got this new thing called cyber analysis. And it was like, cyber? Is that how you say it? And, and this, this is 2008, 2009, as DIA is kind of standing up their first larger foray into cyber threat analysis. And you know, I responded back like, "How do you? How are you defining this? What's the account? Can you give me any parameters before I jump ship from state and come over on this contract over at DIA?" And they said, "Well, it's not nukes, right?" And that's I, you know a, a short. Okay, great. Kind of, so everything but nukes is cyber. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it wasn't it wasn't that long ago in the scheme of things that we were still really across the IC just defining what cyber intelligence and what this discipline and frankly, the domain was even going to look like. So, you know, felt kind of myself lucky to be to be in kind of on the ground floor of that, went over to DIA and helped build out the first Russia cyber account on what we now kind of call the strategic intelligence side. So marrying up doctrine and intentions with activity and infrastructure and, and targets and, and breaches. The, the piece that I liked in running a team over there was I got to start defining what mission capability and what a team would look like to meet a really dynamic threat. And I think for me in the threat of, of different jobs that I've had, and this one especially, that's what I have really looked to do. You know, cyber tech in general is something where we almost use these euphemism of terms to describe how different actors, nation state, non-nation state, NGOs, et cetera, have defined their activities. But what this space calls for is almost a re-examining of mission on a on a really iterative basis. And um, I went out and did that on the public side on the private side next. I went to you know a little then company called Mandiant that was doing incident response and it got this call that was essentially like, hey, we're we're looking at all these digital artifacts, we're looking at all this stuff of breaches. We hear you look at data and then think about it and then write stuff. And I was like, yeah, that's analysis. I'm like, yeah, I could jump into that. So I uh, was early early in at Mandiant and helped build out the intelligence team there, did a, did a lot of the uh, reports and directed a lot of the intelligence work on defining some of the Russian and, and Chinese threats that we profiled over the years. And then by, by 2017, went out on my own, started my own company and consultancy uh, as a way to kind of think through how do we capture this information psychological, this information operations element that has been so married with the technological side and technological threat side for years uh, in the in the real platform of where that had been happening for a long time was Ukraine and did quite a bit of consulting over in Kiev for 2017 up until I took this job at the very beginning of 2022, uh, which I can get into later, but was a was a really eye opening and direct way to understand how, you know, cyber threats and information threats had come together in such a melded place, and then figuring out how to do something about it in the midst of, of you know, almost literal live fire at that point. And then came into this job it, it, with sort of the ask of, hey, let's rethink how we're doing integrated cyber intelligence across the intelligence community via the platform that is the Office of Director of National Intelligence and pull together that through CTIC, the Cyber Threat Intelligence Integration Center. Outstanding. Chris, what about you? Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about your career and how you got to where you are? Sure. I, I, unfortunately, I don't think I've had quite as 
you know, it feels like my, my background is less intentional <laughs> than Laura's. And I, were you forward deployed in Kiev? That's the question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. Like a lot of people in jobs like this, I feel just really fortunate to kind of be where I am. And I don't, I, it's sort of the job found me rather than me finding it, I think. Um, so I went to law school kind of hoping to have a career in government and I sort of started doing appellate type work. And as I was, you know, finishing up a clerkship, I thought, you know, this would be a pretty good time and a pretty good place in your career to take a flyer trying to get a job as being kind of a advisor or a special counsel to a senior government lawyer without any real, you know, I wasn't being choosy about what particular person. I wasn't like, I want to be an security law or I want to be doing this type of law. But at the time, was, this was sort of right around the same time Laura got in the business, like 2008, 2009. National security law was, as, as you know very well, David, and I'm sure Brian does as well, like a very prominent part of your law school experience. I mean, this was, you know, the the post 9-11 legal changes and surveillance and detention and, you know, the, the focus on new, new types of conflict were, were really prevalent there. So it was a very interesting area of law, a very dynamic area of law to be to practice in. And a professor, a friend of mine, got me in touch with, with Jay Johnson, who was then the general counsel of the Pentagon. And I got a job working for him as a, as a special counsel. And like I think a lot of people in inside the national security community, once you're sort of in the gate, you meet people throughout the community and start moving around. So from there, I, I went to OLC for a year. At OLC, I got to work on a project for the then NSC legal advisor, Avril Haynes, uh, who was not a bad person to get to know. Oh, we know her, yeah. Right. And uh, she hired me she did okay. NSC to be her deputy. And then I spent basically the entire second term of the Obama administration as the deputy and then the legal advisor of the National Security Council. You know, in, in, uh, obviously, at the end of the administration, I I left. I spent the, the, the last administration in private practice at Sidley doing information law, effectively cyber breach response and a whole host of information related issues, which was really an interesting perspective, because I think as we'll probably end up discussing throughout this throughout this podcast, you know, the relationship between the public and private sectors is, is so crucial here. And seeing some of these issues from the private sector side, I think does help uh, how you approach them as a government lawyer. But then while I was there, uh, obviously, uh, that, that, that Avril Haynes had a, was going places. So when she ended up coming here to ODNI, she asked me to be your, be your general counsel. And, and I was lucky enough to make it through Senate confirmation. And that's how, that's how I ended up here. But, uh, you know, it's really, you, you always feel a little lucky when you think, you look back at your career and you, and you find yourself in a place like this. I'm tempted to quote the great philosopher, Joe Walsh, uh, who said that another great philosopher who he didn't name said that as you're living your life, it just seems like a set of jumbled events and coincidences that don't add up to anything. And at the end of your life, you realize it was a finely crafted novel. But as Joe says, it don't seem like it while you're living it. Yeah, well, I, thought, I thought you were going to say the noted philosopher Joe Walsh who said, life's been good to me so far. So, right, that's yeah, what I thought exactly. it was going to be too. And it just shows, Chris, that you and I are operating at a certain level and Ryan's at a much... It was either going to be Joe Walsh, life's been good to me so far, or Soren Kierkegaard, life is lived forward and understood backwards. But uh, anyway. Oh, yeah, way to, way to one-up me on the philosophy. I still think Joe Walsh said it better. But look... Listen, when we were talking to Jen, do you remember we were talking to Jen and she started, she was able to quote philosophers too. So, you know, people oh, in yeah. the cyber business, I think you guys are all <laughs> Well, you know, it's a second hobby, I guess. So uh, David and I are of sufficient vintage to remember 
life before the ODNI, uh, when the CIA director was double-hatted as the director of Central Intelligence. And we were around when ODNI was created, but many of our listeners probably have only ever lived with the ODNI or they don't know what it is. So Chris, maybe you could give us a little bit about the DNI, where it fits in the structure, what its authorities are. Sure. So most people would probably date the DNI back to, you know, the immediate aftermath of 9-11 and in particular the 9-11 commission report. Uh, you know, I think one of the main focuses of the report was, and there was, I remember this was like a common meme around the time, connecting the dots and making sure that we were integrating intelligence across the intelligence community. So, so we weren't missing connections that could lead to us, you know, obviously providing left of launch uh, warning. I think there also, the 9-11 commission report also talked about, the need to shift priorities across the intelligence community as the national security landscape was changing. And obviously at that point that it was a change towards counterterrorism. I think we'll probably talk about other changes that have happened since then. So I think because of those identified needs, the 9-11 Commission identified those needs, they recommended the creation of a national intelligence director who would effectively oversee national intelligence and, and manage the national intelligence program, which is really the part of the budget that deals with, with intelligence, the intelligence community. And in the aftermath of that, Congress passed a law, unlike many of the other laws passed in the in that time period that had like witty acronyms. This one was just the Intelligence Reform and Terrorist Prevention Act, which created the director of national intelligence as the principal intelligence advisor of the president responsible for integrating efforts to the IC. So that's really like a very, very brief summary of the history. In terms of what the DNI's role is, I, I think that, you know, there's a statutory provision 50, I think it's USC 3024, which is one of those provisions with like subsections that go up to like Q or X or Z. So there's a lot of different responsibilities. But I think if I was summarizing, I would, I would summarize it as thus. The DNI is not an official that has operational responsibilities. So the actual, you know, conducting intelligence activities is something that the other component, not all the other components, but some of the other components of the IC do. So CIA, NSA, FBI, they're the agencies that are that are really conducting operational activities. It doesn't mean we never are witting of those things or they don't bounce ideas off us, but we're not in the operational chain of command. Those are decisions that are being made by, by the other components. Rather, our roles are more around bringing the intelligence community together and integrating it across a number of different a number of different ways. I think the most and probably the thing that's most prominent that the DNI does is that by statute, she's the senior intelligence advisor to the president and other senior leaders in the U.S. government, which I think as a matter of, you know, most prominently that means that the PDB is done under the DNI's auspices. Um, I think the other things that, you, that people in the public probably see ODNI do are pulls together the annual threat assessment uh, for the intelligence community, that, which then the IC leaders go up and testify before Congress, the national intelligence strategy, sort of these big documents that are the IC's view of what its strategy is and what the threats are at any given time. And if you look through her, her organic statutory authorities, she has a number of other budgetary personnel, information sharing, and other sort of integrative activities, uh, authorities that allow her to bring the IC together. And I think two other things that are very important to the people on this podcast, there's also a number of centers that are housed at ODNI, where are like across particular subject matter areas where ODNI plays a particular role in integrating intelligence. It does it across the entire intelligence landscape, but I think plays a particular role in, in, in a number of centers. Obviously, NCTC being the most, the largest and most prominent. Uh, there's also NCBC now, National Counterproliferation Center. 
uh, National Counterintelligence Security Center, the Cyber Threat Integration <laughs> Intelligence Integration Center, which Laura runs, and then I, uh, the Foreign Malign Influence Center is another another center at ODNI. And then the thing that's most important to me is by statute, the DNI is responsible for ensuring compliance with the Constitution and the laws of the United States by IC elements. So obviously, we we play a role to, to sort of integrate legal advice across across the community. That's pretty good. I mean, let's take that second to last point about CTIC and. I know like Brian and I, again, in the dating yourself category, every time I say CTIC, I want to say TTIC. Oh, okay. So I, sorry to interrupt you, David. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't going to bring this up, but now I have to. When I was sitting in one of the chairs that Chris held at the NSC, the, 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 the lesser of the two, the deputy chair, I was the lawyer for the process that created what is now called the National Counterterrorism Center. But what, as David is alluding to, originally was called the Terrorism Threat Integration Center. And the reason it wasn't called the Terrorism Threat Intelligence Center, which was the original name, is the director of deputy director for intelligence of the CIA basically threatened to resign from government <laughs> if any other component got to use the word intelligence. I am not making that up. <laughs> Times have changed. So, Laura, tell us about, you know, Chris has given us an overview of ODNI and how it stood up and what it does. What about CTIC? How did it stand up? What does it do? What's its relationship to the other uh, fusion centers across other elements of the government uh, in the cyber area? Yeah, thanks. Maybe before I launch into the bureaucratics of it, I have to take your listeners down memory lane back to uh, very late 2014 and a terrible Seth Rogen uh, parody movie called The Interview. And uh, for those for those who are following at the time, it was a parody of the North Korean leader. Now, was it and, a terrible movie or are you just saying it sparked terrible consequences? Well, kind of bold. <laughs> I mean, maybe I shouldn't opine too much on on any sort of, you know, I'm, I'm no movie critic. My, <laughs> my plane watching uh, movies is just like the most I ever see of anything. But needless to say, it probably wasn't in Sony's mind looking back now, you know, eight years ago, worth the stretch on that movie, right? Yeah, not good ROI. So anyway, in the in the midst of the Sony of the North Korean cyber attack on Sony, there was a scramble to kind of put it mildly across both the public and, and private sector to figure out who's behind this. You know, how do we have a major company being taken down, you know, to its knees from a cyber attack? And this sounds kind of quaint now because so much has happened since then. But you know, this was a real question. And how do we get the right artifacts, the right infrastructure and malware and everything else that that's happened during this network incident together and share it between the then incident responders, which I was on the other side it was it was Mandiant who's doing the the breach investigation, and then make sure we've got a full intel picture, pull it together, and then figure out how to respond from a policy standpoint. And it was from that kind of moment, which was certainly no nine eleven, but you know equally instructive to the to the rest of the IC to say, hey, we got to pull things together here and have a mechanism that does that. Um, and that's how CTIC was born. So February twenty fifth, twenty fifteen. We're now in in over eight years of of this. And as you can imagine, uh, the space and the challenge has changed a lot. You know, attribution, if you had to do a buzzword bingo from back in the day, I think attribution was mentioned like every three times, you know, cyber was mentioned, right? So um, it's not that attribution isn't still a challenge and a big part of the work that the IC does when we're looking at incident response, but it's sort of built into the larger set of work that that we're doing in cyber intelligence, which includes 
figuring out how do we have the right data sets at kind of a macro level to be able and partnerships behind that to be able to really be able to paint the threat on a dynamic basis. And that's where CTIC comes in today, right? So we're looking across the community. Chris mentioned the sort of larger convening and in, in kind of ability to have some visibility across the community and across the 18 different agencies and see what they're up to and see where there's gaps and where there's a, a opportunity to kind of build some connective tissue between different interagency efforts. We do that at CTIC. I'll give you an example to make this a little more little more clear. So when we're when we're thinking about the type of data that could be useful around a major cyber incident, some of it might come from a cybersecurity vendor who's picking up the detections around the malware. Some of it might come from an insurance company who's getting reporting uh, from that, let's say, you know, a school system or someone else who's going to make a claim to say, hey, we we have a major ransomware attack on our hands. What should we do about it? Right. Um, then we're going to potentially get some sort of intelligence behind the actor around it from our own clandestine sources. So you can imagine the variety of different sourcing that's coming in to even understand what's going on and making sure that we've got the right agencies who process that from both the FBI side, law enforcement side, all the way, you know, up to agencies that have a, a very close touch with some with some of the defensive community like DHS. Um, Department of Energy's got a touch into their agency partnerships as well, into the private partnerships that they have, but making sure we can pull all that information together and intelligence together into one integrated picture. You know, that's kind of the, the analytic integration and the intelligence integration function we've got. But the other side, and, and maybe this gets at where you're kind of headed towards as well, we've got a policy function uh, in supporting policy. And the way that I like to think about kind of what we're doing to make sure we've got the right intelligence to be able to answer key policy questions is we've got kind of this last mile support function. So where you know, Pound Cyber over at the National Security Council or another policy agency wants to inform the type of decision that they're going to tee up to principals or to deputies or you know, major decision makers in the government. They need to make sure they've got an intelligence picture that is robust enough to tee up the opportunities and some of the, the costs that would be associated with that decision. And that's where we take a lot of the requirements. Sometimes these are kind of micro requirements and feed them back into the community to make sure we're able to paint a, a really effective picture for policymakers to understand what their decisions are going to be based on and how those will, will change. Yeah. So you've touched on a lot of things and let me pull two threads and see if we can, to mix metaphors and knit them together. The coordination function across the U.S. government offensive and defensive is one thing. Private public partnerships are another. And David and I have run into many, many clients over the years who have always believed that information sharing with the USG is a one-way street and blah, blah, blah. And everybody thinks there's this secret squirrel nugget of certainty that if only they knew they could protect themselves against every cyber threat, which we know isn't true. But we also know that Congress did something very unusual for Congress uh, last year, uh, which is to pass a law. <laughs> the, cy <laughs> the Cyber Incident Reporting and this is me talking, not them. The Cyber Incident Reporting and Critical Infrastructure Act of 2022. So, can you talk a little bit about that and about how the public should have confidence in sharing information and how the information gets used to protect all of us? 
Brian, I think I think Laura will probably answer that. But before I have to just comment on your comment about Congress passing laws as um, given the number of uh, reporting requirements and other obligations placed on ODNI every year in the IAA, I think we have to beg to defer from. from <laughs> You've been very active in one sector of, uh, of legislation with respect to your reporting. Huh? I, I was in CIA OGC back at the end of the last century when uh, the how I think it was the Senate Intelligence Committee and their infinite wisdom decide to fine us a per- percentage of our budget every day that we didn't turn in a particular report <laughs> they demanded. Fabulous. I don't think we ever paid. Okay, so does ODNI in your coordinating function like put out like the horse blanket sized spreadsheets of all the various reporting obligations? Because when in my day that was more of an OMB thing across the full range of issues, but maybe you guys do it for Intel because it is like hundreds, if not thousands, of sometimes mutually inconsistent and overlapping reporting obligations. So do you guys run that show or who's doing that? So I think the thing, that's, the thing that I think Congress does, and this is a, sort of a, an analog to the point Laura just made about how it's very easy for policymakers to say, hey, CTIC, could you give us a coordinated intelligence community assessment? It's much easier to do that rather than reach out to all the different components who would have intelligence. I think Congress often will assign a reporting requirement to ODNI on the assumption that ODNI will then coordinate an intelligence community coordinated response. So in some ways, the statutes themselves, and that doesn't, that's not exclusively, there's obviously some obligations that are placed, reporting obligations that are placed on individual IC elements, and which, which they'll track. But there's a lot of times where I think Congress will, will write a reporting obligation assigned to the Director of National Intelligence on the assumption that that would then be coordinated with IC elements. So, it, it, you know, it's, 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 it's one of the big it, it, yeah, I'm obviously a little biased, but I think that you know, 20 years down the road, almost now that ODNI has been in place, I think the the value of having that agency that can coordinate IC views and integrate IC views is is really helpful. And I mean, we've gone from a, just the thing that really struck me, Brian, by your mention is you were at the NSC when uh, we, we couldn't use the word in, intelligence in, in the creation of the yep. NCTC. I was at the NSC when. The, when CTIC was stood up and that was, you know, there was obviously always a healthy policy about that stuff, but that was not a concern. And I think that, you know, you go back and read the, the 9-11 report, they talk about how during the Cold War, integration wasn't as important when you were focused on military targets and in, in, in the former Soviet Union. And, you know, people could argue whether how true, I'm sure people disagreed, there were people who disagreed with that at the time, but their point that as threats move faster across borders and faster across domains, the, their focus be on counterterrorism. Integration was even more important. And seamless integration was even more important. I think that now that there's a CTEC and cyber moving even faster than counterterrorism, just I think shows shows the the bet Congress made in, in creating ODNI seems to, to to have paid off in my mind. And that's what Circea is doing for cyber incident reporting for the private sector, right? It's just seamless integration, absolutely perfect <laughs> in all respects. Can you tell us, either one of you, a little bit about, you know, <laughs> how's that well, going? Chris politely pointed at me on that one. <laughs> let's just let's just caveat it to say it's still early days of the Circea. It hasn't been around that long. And don't forget that people think we didn't get the Defense Department right until about 1990, if, if then. <laughs> and at least one Secretary of Defense killed himself because of bureaucratic issues. So I have sympathy for you guys, even if David doesn't. I do, too. I do, too. <laughs> Come on, I'm not heartless. 
<laughs> well, well, you're right. It's the early days. I think they've got another two years of administrative rulemaking for Cersei to go in, you know, into effect, if you want to think of it that way, right? But obviously, the opportunity to start to get, from, from an Intel standpoint, to get some trending data and understanding incident response in a relatively quick time frame after major cyber events happen is going to be huge. And I think that it's something that, you know, across across the private sector and across cybersecurity vendors and incident responders, there's sort of been this collective understanding that we've got to share what we're seeing in as live and dynamic of a, a way as possible. But to do this so that we've got it holistically with the 72 hours from, from breach to reporting, et cetera, I think is going to be a big step forward. The Canadians have actually um, gone out and, and done some mandatory incident response reporting uh, legislation and, and gotten this on the books a little bit ahead of us uh, collectively as the USG. So it'll be really interesting to see what Canada's experience looks like here. But, you know, at the at the end of the day, this is DHS and CISA's to kind of craft on how the execution looks here. But I think it's a it's a it's a pretty big moment that we're going to have when we're able to get that kind of data and, and uplift it and, and sort of understand the threat with a bit more fidelity that the private sector sees on a regular basis. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers, 
with my personal information. 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And the private sector, you know, looking at this, sees Circea at the statutory level, but they also see kind of a pretty complicated mosaic of regulatory agencies exercising pre-existing authorities to impose incident reporting obligations in particular sectors or, you know, industry domains. And recently, the NSTAC, uh, one of the advisory councils, recommended a deconfliction process on that and recommended that CISA do it. We asked Jen Easterly, do you want to take that up? And she sort of demurred, as I recall. So we'll ask you, A, do you see a concern around just the sort of throwing spaghetti at the wall uh, cyber incident reporting approach? You know, do you agree with NSTAC that that ought to be deconflicted? And are you prepared to step into the breach and have ODNI be the deconfliction agency? Or would you like to pass that back to DHS? <laughs> well, I think that last part of that question is easy. Like, it's just not going to fit within kind of the both authorities that we have, nor is it really part of ODNI's mission to do that level of deconfliction. I think Chris spoke earlier, to, you know, we don't have an operational role in, in a traditional sense here, and that probably carries over into this space too. Look, as as a as an organization who talks a lot with the private sector uh, from the Intel community side, 
there is certainly, to your point, kind of a question of like, we've got a lot of different players in the room across the USG that the private sector is reporting into. You know, the DIB, the defense uh, industrial base, goes in and talks to DC3 over on the DOD side when they have a breach, right? The Cyber Collaboration Center up at NSA has been doing incredible work with their DIB partners and others. We had Rob Joyce on uh, this podcast just uh, very recently, and we talked about him and Morgan and their work up there. Yeah. Yeah, no, Morgan's done incredible work up there that uh, I heard on the on Rob walking through that the other day as well. So, you know, there's a lot of different doors, if you will. Here's here's what I fear. Like, there's, there's sort of this question of like, is there going to be one front door or do we need one front door? I think the reality is this space is is wide. And what we're trying to figure out how to capture here is you've got – multiple different sectors with different types of tech that are going to get compromised in different ways from OT to, you know, to IT to all sorts of other systems that we haven't even really conceived of yet. And we're trying to create legislation at a macro level here that's able to capture a lot of those different use cases. And I think it would be sort of a, a futile exercise if we were to say there's going to be one fit for how you tell the quote unquote government about this, right? So, what I think we should hope for and strive for here is just clarity on who you approach based on the use case you have and what your company is. And that that clarity is something we always need to work at. And, and you know, no, we're never going to hit a, a kind of nirvana in ability for, for companies to know exactly who do you who do you notify where on what certain permutation and, and, and be able to communicate that in some blanket statement. It's going to be something that evolves over time. Let me let me just jump in and, and pivot here because we are the Lawfare Podcast. We have lots of lawyers who listen, but we have a few non-lawyers. So let's move from sort of legal authorities and statutory coordination and the like to something much, much easier, uh, the Ukraine-Russia war. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Laura, you mentioned that you spent time uh, helping Ukraine harden their cyber defenses. Thank you for that uh, on behalf of a grateful nation. To the extent you can talk about that, uh, that would be great, but but probably you can't talk too much about it. But the bigger question is, have we learned some important cyber lessons? Have you guys as the intelligence community learned from Russia, Ukraine so far? Yeah. So when I was over in Ukraine, I was actually doing it as a corporate and private entity. So I, I'm happy right. to kind of speak to what, what we did. But here's, here's the way that I kind of evaluated the experience over there. So the USAID, the US Agency for International Development, put some of the first funding into Ukraine on network resilience, cybersecurity. And that was an interesting place for USAID to be too. This wasn't kind of a traditional area for them. In that initial money that went in in 2017 and end of 2016 that I started working through was was really the first time that we had an ability to go profile who was doing what in the Ukrainian government from a cyber intelligence standpoint, from a cybersecurity standpoint, from an authority standpoint, and just doing, you know, I, you kind of felt like the first one going in, I would go upstairs in the back of, you know, buildings in Kiev with government officials, who was kind of the first time they were thinking through, how do I describe what we've been up to for the last couple of years to an outsider, right? And not just to an American, but like to someone who's visited my agency for from any other agency. So a lot of what I did was really kind of the mapping of here's what agency X is doing, here are the authorities they think they're drawing on, here's where they feel like they need legislation, et cetera. So it was very much a, a survey to kind of understand that. Then you start going a layer deeper and saying, all right, 
whose networks connect to who else's networks and how do we put this together? So that was the nature of what, what I was doing. But I think here was the really tough part that the Ukrainians just kept bringing in every time we would talk, no matter whether it was organizational construct or the threat, you know, they looked at this and said, not I'm trying to build an airplane or, you know, I'm trying to build an engine while I fly the airplane, but like we've been in a, existential battle with Russia for our own sovereignty since the beginning of calling this place Ukraine in the modern era, right? And this isn't like a network defense problem. This isn't just some like national security problem. This is identity. This is culture. This is our own, you know, ability to do that. And a lot of my colleagues who I worked with over there were people who had been in Maidan, who had gone and been in the, um, in, in 2014, and they'd been in just so many different literal street fights for their own independence and sovereignty. So that clarifying moment of like, this is, this isn't just like mission. It's not network defense. Like this is how do we position the government the right way? And how do we position our own sort of strategic communications in addition to network defense in a way that's going to be effective just came through so clearly in, in, in that work. And obviously we would see that come to a really scary head and continue to in the lead up to 2022, to February 24th. And, and here we are today, kind of in the midst of what continues to be a long battle. So Chris, how about you? When you uh, first joined the government at DOD, uh, did you expect you'd be <laughs> the general counsel of ODNI during a land war in Europe? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's funny that, you know, obviously it's hard to talk about the specifics of, of what, what, the, what lessons I've learned from Russia, Ukraine. But I think the thing that's been really striking to me is as someone, I mentioned this earlier, who started his career kind of when the post 9-11 CT was still very much a, a central focus of the national security movement at large. Not that it's not still important, it obviously is, but it was, it was, we weren't having a land war in Europe at the time, but it was also very much a focus of national security lawyers. We're now sort of like this strange back to the future aspect of, of the Russia-Ukraine war, where we've spent this close to a generation developing a legal framework and, and focusing on the rules of NIACs and uh, all of these questions that are basically focused on uh, counterterrorism efforts. And now we're, we're dealing with a traditional armed conflict between new two, two nation states and all these legal questions that I think, you know, national security lawyers probably you know, before 9-11 thought of as their bread and butter, like the crime of aggression, war crimes, providing support to states and engage in armed conflict. All of these questions that, that really are, are back on the, front, on the front burner in a way that they hadn't been previously. And it's really a kind of interesting, it's, it's interesting for a lawyer to see this sort of shift in, in a different area of focus. And maybe to parallel that for a second, that kind of whiplash that, yeah, that yeah. Chris is speaking to, uh, you know, almost felt similar on the cyber side where there was just, you know, such a deep discussion because Ukraine had been a real test bed, if you will, for Russian cyber operations for years and years and had been a place where we kind of saw it as an indication mm -hmm. of warnings of, of what else, what other types of activity could go towards the U.S. and what have you. And not that it hasn't been that, but it has certainly, the way that cybers played out in the war really kind of fell short of the pace and impact that we expected originally. Uh, that Viasat hack that, you know, has been kind of widely discussed and the government attributed back in May was an important element, but, you know, huge lesson around once kinetic wars in play, you know, being able to, to have full scope operations that include a really robust um, cyber and digital element to them is tough. 
So that's been eye-opening. Well, Laura, that's interesting. So not, I don't think everybody would say that, even those in the government. That is, what I hear you saying is the cyber offensive efforts by the Russians have been somewhat less than expected. Others might say, or maybe they would, uh, geez, no, the Russians have thrown everything they have at it, but the Ukrainians have such massive defense and, you know, with the partnership in the hunt forward teams and whatever, they've been able to resist. Can you sort of plant the flag on that continuum between less offensive and better defensive? Well, I think it's the Ukrainian story to tell a bit on on what they have been fighting on the cyber front from the Russians. And they certainly are, you know, on the on the front line of a lot of the offensive activity against their own networks. I think where where we think about it from a US threat standpoint, you know, there was such anticipation that we would see sort of a, a retaliation against our critical infrastructure writ large um, or elsewhere. And that motivated a lot of the network defense efforts, shields up memorably. You've had Jen on um, in, in other sort of discussions on what do we do writ large across the U.S. to prepare for this. And that's where it's early and we're still, you know, we're, we're over a year into this, but I'm really reluctant to say, you know, we're ready to kind of learn huge lessons from something that may go on here for, for quite a bit more time. Let me pull on, let me pull on this specific thread because yeah. I at least get this question all the time and no comment is a perfectly appropriate response for you guys. But, you know, the story of Russia, at least publicly known story of Russia cyber attacks on the U.S. during this war is really the the bear that didn't roar. And so one can imagine a couple scenarios why that is. One, it did roar and we muted it effectively and no one knows that, which would be great. Or it can't roar as much as we thought it could. Or uh, Putin's just keeping his powder dry until he thinks he really needs to use his cyber capability offensively in the U.S. Would you care to comment on any of those scenarios? Brian, are you trying to get us to commit news? I cannot in this forum go into more detail there. but You'd like to take it up in the executive session? Yeah, come on down. We're pleased to do that in a closed setting. Okay. So let me just say as a civilian with no knowledge of anything, if it's scenario one where they've been trying and we've been stopping them, thank you for your guys' efforts. And, and I'll just say, I mean, I have heard increasingly statements coming out of uh, U.S. government agencies saying, hey, look, whatever on, on Ukraine, Russia, but in connection with, you know, PRC efforts vis-a-vis Taiwan, we better be ready for active efforts in U.S. cyber infrastructure. So there are warnings being issued by you guys or at least your colleagues across the interagency around getting those shields up. Uh, in U.S. infrastructure to protect against at least the possibility of very, very aggressive attacks from other nation state actors. So we'll just make note of that and move on to spare you the agony of another Um, (laughs) non-answer. One thing that has definitely changed in this back to the future environment, which you talked about, is the, the technology. And it continues to evolve at a just dizzying, rapid, scary pace. You know, I guess broad question to, to both of you, what's new and different and coming down the pike technologically and I guess in the broader information environment in which the IC has to operate that, you know, requires your attention, either yours, Laura, you know, in, a, in CTIC or Chris, maybe in your area, if you're thinking about authorities, uh, 
cyber threats, technology, or information environmental questions that need to be addressed in your domains? I'm reminded uh, by this question of there's the great scene in, in I think it's The Sun Also Rises, where the one character says to the other, how did you go broke? And then the response is gradually, then suddenly. Yeah, right. right. I, I kind of feel like we're <laughs> at a point technologically where we're in the, in the sudden transformation. And obviously, you know, a lot of these trends aren't entirely new. The, there's been, you know, the information age is, is a couple of generations old. But leave, having been out of government for a short spell and you know, seeing the issues I dealt with when I was in government last time and now and this time, this is the area that I think feels like there's been the most sudden change. And, you know, David is, I'm sure Brian knows as well, but David, I know you definitely know that the law ultimately is responsive to technology. I mean, you have the Supreme Court in Olmstead saying, wiretapping is not a Fourth Amendment search. You have <laughs> the trespass theory of the Fourth Amendment. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and then and then uh, then forty years later, they they change their view because technology changes people's perceptions of what a reasonable expectation of privacy is. And some doctrines like incorporate reasonableness, which where techn technology is incorporated. In other cases, the law just changes uh, to reflect it, like Section Seven Hundred Two of the FISA. So I feel like as a lawyer responding to this these technological changes is something that we have to do in, in, in multiple ways. One is that you just have to sort of deal with statutes that were written in different different technological landscape and try to apply them to new technologies, which is which is in some ways the easier thing. I think the thing that's, that's more challenging, and it's not a strictly legal role, but I think it's a role that lawyers and policy officials and intelligence officials have to do is like to develop frameworks to give society comfort in how we're using these new technologies. I mean, you see that you know, even in the, the short time I've been back in government, you had the 014086 that updates PB28 with respect to signals intelligence. You have the EO that the, the administration that the president recently signed on on uh, commercial spyware. And uh, you know, this is something the DNI has talked about publicly a lot that as data becomes so prevalent, which is obviously super important to cybersecurity, but to every aspect of of the intelligence community's work, and as it becomes commercially available, it's going to be incumbent on us to, to develop frameworks and rules of the road so that people have confidence that we're using this this new tech, this new data, and the new technologies that that it, that it sports and, and, and creates in a way that the American people have confidence in them. So I think that's a you know it's it's a little bit of an abstract answer. It's not aimed at any specific technology, but it's, those sorts of th issues are, are things that really take up a lot, I feel like a lot of my time. In, in my current role. And yeah, but that little stone skipping across the water of legal authorities just bought you at least a couple of return visits to this podcast series. <laughs> so, uh, Congratulations. On the security front. It's coveted. We'll get you a challenge coin. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the only, the only piece I would add just to Chris's sort of lay down there was when we're thinking from the IC's standpoint on how we're able to analyze and then understand whatever the, the tech of the day is and the application of that tech to a specific problem set, what we're looking to make sure we have is where we don't have the indigenous kind of understanding or collection around that issue, who do we partner with to find that? And this is where I think DNI's put in a lot of energy to think about the right feel for 
for private partnerships with the government that has the agility to capture the researcher who might know something in a different way or a different style or the company who's going to have insight who we just don't haven't had a good working relationship with because we haven't known where they were or how they existed. So we have this moment right now to think about the flavor of different partnerships so that we're able to have the kind of auxiliary capability to go after and make sure we've got the muscle to go and take these problems on from an analytic standpoint and from a you know larger intelligence standpoint. But that's that's really hard to do if you think about this in terms of just forecasting, all right, within the next three to four years, we need to be able to look at quantum and crypto. And you know, if you want to pick those areas, fine, but who knew that we would be looking at large language models and its application uh, as much as we are in the last two months here, right? And thinking about what would what's needed and how do we understand that? So it, you know, I, I think we've got this balance of like, how do you how do you create that next layer of expertise that we're able to draw upon to make really tough uh, decisions and do some some really deep analysis in these areas. All right. So as we wind down on our time, and again, thank you for spending time with us. Yeah, I mean, thank maybe you. That's a, that's a good transition to the new cyber strategy and the importance that it reflects about the private sector. So it's a good document, I think. It's getting positive reviews. And maybe you guys can tell us, um, Chris and Laura, like, what do you think are the most important, new, exciting, notable elements from the strategy? And how's it going to play out going forward? I liked how in pillar, in, in, in kind of the second pillar, which has gotten a lot of focus, the disrupting uh, and dismantling threat actors section, I liked the point that we were able to really drive home in the interagency development of this around an approach for disruption that's going to have a lot of different angles to it, both within the government. You know, obviously there's law enforcement, there's operators, there's a ton of different authorities that you've got to kind of keep in sync as we think about disrupting actors in cyberspace. But it, it opens the door to thinking about this a little bit more broadly with different types of partners. And, you know, I, I hate leaning on this like cyber's a team sport sort of uh, mantra too much. But like this really is something where most of the internet is not something that we're going to be able to understand or look at on a regular basis from the government standpoint. So how we build the right sort of team on a regular basis and, and, and look at how we want to disrupt both almost from a communication standpoint, not just in a traditional network defense standpoint, is, is really important. And I think the bookmarks that are put into the cybersecurity strategy on that are, are really key. So um, that to me is one of my favorite parts that lead that I think will lead us towards a, a more effective place and how we want to actually go after malicious activity. Excellent. So given that we are the Lawfare podcast, Chris, uh, you get the last word here. What would you like our, our listeners to be thinking about in this area? <laughs> oh, that's a that's a tough one. I, I, first off, just I think I can speak for Laura. I say we both thank you guys for, for having us on. I guess what I would say is cyber, like a lot of intelligence challenges at the end of the day, is really a people challenge, too, for the IC. And in a, in, a, in a world where telework is becoming more prevalent and there's a lot of uh, people who can do these types of jobs, have a lot of other alternatives. I think that you know, it's really, I, I can speak for myself, I think Laura would agree, it's just incredibly rewarding to do this type of work for your, for your government. And as this call and your questions demonstrate, and our answers probably demonstrate a little bit less because we, we didn't want to commit news, 
you know, there's, it's just really rewarding work and you, you get to deal with really difficult questions and difficult issues and, and struggle with those questions on a day to day basis. So the extent there's anyone out there who's thinking about whether or not they should, should you know, submit that application to DNI or any IC element or any USG element to work on these issues, I would, would highly recommend them doing you so. You see the way NSA has been pouncing on the, <laughs> the Silicon Valley layoffs, like we offer stable employment. <laughs> and uh, so Chris, if they want to come and work for you, is there um, a, a USA jobs or what's the best way to get in the door? <laughs> If you're interested in joining us here, obviously a mission that is incredibly important and a speed that is very fast, right? I I don't know how many hours you did before this job, but to me, this has been a real magnification of the amount and speed of effort that we have to do here. But if you want to join the join, it's intelligencecareers.gov. Outstanding. Well, now we're going to let you guys go so you can deal with the flood of applications that are coming in. <laughs> right. right. right now. Even though, we, weirdly <laughs> enough, even though this hasn't aired yet, I don't know how that happened. But, right. but seriously, thanks a lot, you guys. So thank you for your service. Uh, it's great that you've got the private sector experience and you're willing to take it back into government. We, we know how, how that, uh, that impacts your, your life and your family. So thank you and thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks so, so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. And check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer for this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.